So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 37. We're going to, this, we have uh, two weeks left in our Psalm series, so we're going to break Psalm 37 up into two sermons because there are 40 verses uh, in this Psalm, and that's a lot of verses to handle in one sermon, unless it was narrative, that's a little bit easier. But here's the reason why we're breaking up, because these 40 verses read like they came straight out of the book of Proverbs. So there's some Proverbs DNA in Psalm 37. They're short, these verses are short little nuggets of truth, and that kind of makes it harder to find a structure that easily fits into a sermon. But when David wrote this song, he wasn't thinking about preachers who would try to tackle all 40 verses in one sermon. He wasn't thinking about how this song reads like it comes out of the book of Proverbs and how hard that makes it for preachers to find some sort of outline or structure. He wrote this song to God. It's a prayer. He wasn't thinking, if I write this song, how will preachers unpack it? David wasn't thinking about preachers at all. David was actually thinking about wicked people, evil people who were getting under his skin. So David has in mind, one, unbelievers from surrounding nations, but probably even more so, unbelieving Israelites who lived in Israel. These are people in this psalm who live without a moral compass. They, They live any way they want, and yet they still prosper And they still get raises at their jobs. And their kids are star athletes. And that drives David nuts. And that's why he wrote this psalm. To help him and to help the church deal with people who live carelessly. To deal with people who live without a moral compass. And yet, they thrive. They're doing well. They keep getting raises at work. They're successful. They're well off. They vacation in exotic places. And... They worship other gods, or they live in Israel and they claim to love Yahweh, but they don't really follow him. Yahweh, God, is not their delight, he's not their joy, he's not their treasure, and that bothers David. So David wrote this song to remind us that no matter what happens in this world or what, may pe- what people may do or how they live, or what they don't do, He's reminding us that God is still on his throne and that his plan is running along just fine. We don't have to worry about anything. David reminds us that providence still orchestrates all the affairs of mankind. And he writes to remind us that nobody is getting away with anything, even if it seems like it. David will encourage us to wait on God, to trust him, and to keep eternity in view. So I'm going to point out at least one of the features of Psalm 37. It's an acrostic psalm. You probably have a footnote in your Bible that tells you this. What is an acrostic psalm? It's where each stanza or each verse begins with each successive letter of the alphabet. In this case, every other verse begins with the word starts with the letter A, and then it goes on to the letter B, and then on to the letter C, or in Hebrew, it's actually A, B, G. So that's what it is. So here's our big idea today. Belly flop onto Jesus and rest. 
Here's what I mean by that. Think of it this way. Think of it as if you're traveling on a business trip or a vacation, but you have to get up really, really early in the morning to catch your flight, and then you have several layovers, and there are delays, and you get rerouted, and then many, many, many hours later, you finally make it to your hotel room. You walk in after an exhausting day of travel. You drop your bags on the ground, and then you walk up to the bed, and then you do what? You just belly flop on that thing, don't you? Unless you're an OCD germaphobe like me and you get out like cleaning wipes and you wipe down the remote control of the TV and all the countertops and every little light switch and the handles in the sink in the bathroom because you've got to clean that place up first, right? Normal people just plop onto the bed, don't they? You just collapse face first. You just go, and you let out a sigh and you're like, that's what David is telling us to do in Psalm 37. You may not see it in the English, but David is actually recommending a full-on, face-first, with reckless abandon, belly flop onto the Lord. Just collapsing from exhaustion into God's arms. Now, let me show you where I'm getting all that belly flop business. Look at verse 1, Psalm 37. If you're new, when you see Lord in all capital letters, that's in, in the original Hebrew language, that's God's covenant name. It's God's name, Yahweh. Um, and I don't know why English translators don't put Yahweh. It kind of gets me worked up. This is God's name. He gave us his name to use in, in songs, to sing, just like David here. Okay? Don't think that God's name was too holy to pronounce. Yahweh appears all over um, the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus' name, we were just singing the name above all names, the name that's beautiful and powerful. It's the name Yahweh. Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. So when you would see Jesus on the earth, you would be saying, hey, Yahweh saves. So his name is not too holy pr- to pronounce. So when you see all capital letters, Lord, that's Yahweh. That's how I'll read it. Okay, verse 1. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in Yahweh and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in Yahweh and he will give you the desires of your heart. So David kind of sandwiches the first eight verses like this. He begins by saying, fret not in verse 1. Two times he'll say trust in verses 2 to 6. And then in verses 7 and 8 he'll say fret not again. So he's kind of sandwiched trust in between these two bookends or loaves uh, of fret not. So trusting in the Lord, which David mentions twice, is bookended by fret not, which he also says twice. So there's this positive and negative commandment here. Don't fret, but trust. And that's sort of the layout in the first part here. David reminds us that we don't have to fret or be envious when we see evildoers prospering in the world. Why? Because ultimately, They will fade away, he says. They will dry up like your lawn when water restrictions are in place. They will wither away. The Hebrew word that David uses here in verses 1 and in verses 7 through 8 for fret means to get hot or to burn. Uh, We might say, uh, don't get worked up over something or they're hot and bothered. Or we might say, oh, that just burns me up. 
That's the idea here with this Hebrew word. It's getting so worked up, so angry, so frustrated about something. And that something in the context of Psalm 37 is evildoers who seem to be living the lifestyles of the rich and famous. And David says, don't get worked up over them. Don't let them get underneath your skin. Old Testament scholar Alan Ross explains this Hebrew word for fret. He says, it expresses a passionate intensity, a consuming indignation. But it goes even further than that. It is a passionate frustration and inquiry about the power of the rule of God. It is senseless to fret, for fretting and being angry about the inequities of life are signs of mistrust. That is why the psalmist will immediately advise faith and obedience, a faith that turns over all the cares of this life to the Lord. So instead of getting worked up by things, David tells us to trust in the Lord. Because when we fret over things, it's a sign of mistrust. It's a sign that we are passionately frustrated with providence. That's a tough phrase to swallow. I am passionately frustrated with what God is doing in the world. Ouch. I am passionately frustrated with the way God rules his world. That's a hard truth to swallow, because if you're like me, sometimes you are passionately frustrated with the way things are, and that's a sign of mistrust. But what does David mean, and what does it actually look like to trust the Lord? And here's the answer. It's like doing a belly flop. The Hebrew word used here for trust, the Hebrew word batak, is the same word used in Proverbs 3, 5, which I know you have memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. The same word is there. Commenting on Proverbs uh, 3, 5 in his Proverbs commentary, Ray Ortland says this, the Hebrew verb translated trust is cognate with an Arabic verb that means to throw oneself down on one's face, to lie down, spread eagle in complete reliance, to make it as graphic as I can, to do a belly flop on God with all our sin and all our failure and all our fears. We stake everything on the gospel promises of God. And so you could paraphrase these two verses out of Proverbs 3 and Psalm 37 this way. Belly flop on the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Doesn't that change that verse for you? Instead of just trusting the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. Belly flop on the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Or Psalm 37, 3, belly flop on the Lord and do good. Let me ask you, is that how you picture trusting Jesus? You just lie down, spread eagle, in complete reliance. You just belly flop into the pool of providence. I hope that image gets burned in your mind about what it means to trust Jesus. You just let go of it all. And then you're able to do what David says next. He says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in Yahweh and he will give you the desires of your heart. When you are resting in Jesus, you are now free to go and do good to other people. 
As Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. When you are spread eagle in complete reliance upon Jesus, trusting him to solve your problems, you're now free to do good, to love and serve other people because you're not obsessed with your life and you're not obsessed with your situation. When you rest in the providential care of Jesus, you can be a blessing to others as you live life. But David also says that you can befriend faithfulness. That's how the English Standard Version translates this phrase. This phrase is taken, uh, translated in different ways by various translations. Uh, Literally, it's shepherd faithfulness. What does that mean? I think the idea paired with what follows with the phrase dwell in the land is best translated by the New King James Version, which says dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. I think David is saying, instead of getting worked up over the things in life, we should be like lambs dwelling in the land and feeding on Yahweh's faithfulness, feeding on the Lord's faithfulness. That's what will keep us from fretting about things. It's as we feed on the promises of God that we live lives where we don't panic, we don't worry, we don't chew our nails, we don't pace the floor. And it's as we feast on God's word and feast on his promises and feast on his faithfulness that we are then able to delight ourselves in the Lord, as David says in verse 4. We learn to stop panicking and we begin to delight in all that God is for us. And as we are satisfied with Jesus, he becomes our desire. So this verse is not saying just find your delight in Jesus and he will give you whatever you want, new car, new job, new money. As long as you're delighting in Jesus, he's going to give you the desire of your heart. No, David is saying feed on God's faithfulness. Find your delight in him and he will give you the desires of your heart, namely more of him. And isn't that what you really want in life? More of Jesus? Yeah, you may be bothered that some pagan unbeliever you know goes on these really cool vacations to places and you may be a little envious, but really in your heart of hearts, Christian, don't you just want more of Jesus? Don't you want Jesus more than that vacation, that raise? More of Jesus. When Jesus is the desire of your heart, he will give you more of himself. And I don't know about you, but I could use more Jesus in my life. I need all I can get. Yes, we have all we need in Christ. We are secure. But there is more of Jesus to experience as long as we are living. There is more of him. There is a deep ocean of God that we can dive into. There are depths of God. And we're just splashing around in the kiddie pool. Let's be a church that delights in Jesus more than anything. And let's get more of him. And let's go deeper. Let's go deeper in prayer, deeper in Bible study and Bible memorization and meditation, deeper into communion and fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. Let's go deeper into freedom. Who doesn't want to be free? One way to get more Jesus is to let go of all the things that have you distracted and get you so worked up, namely the cares and burdens of life. Look at verse five. Commit your way to Yahweh. 
Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before Yahweh and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. Commit your way to the Lord, David says. The word commit in verse 5 means to roll away. The word is used in the book of Genesis when they would roll heavy stones off of wells where they would get water. They'd have to roll that stone off. So David is saying, roll your ways, everything about your life, roll it onto Jesus. Roll all of your cares, roll all of your frustrations, roll all of your jealousies, roll all of your resentments, all of your fears, roll everything onto the Lord. That's what discipleship looks like at the street level. That's what discipleship looks like on Monday morning. It's just rolling your burdens onto the Lord. You may know about George Mueller. Maybe you've read a biography about him. Here's what he looked like, by the way. What a crazy look. That dude walked in freedom, didn't he? I mean, look at that. He was rocking a faux hawk in the 1800s before middle-aged men tried to pull it off, right? That guy was free. Y'all thought I looked weird? Your pastor could look like that. Anyways, George Mueller lived in the 1800s. He took care of thousands of orphans. He never asked anyone for help. He never asked for money or donations. He simply trusted the Lord, and God provided. One day, George Mueller was asked how he handled all the pressures of the orphanage, all the pressures of church ministries. He was a pastor, too, and his reply was this. I rolled 60 things onto the Lord this morning. How are you dealing with everything, George? I rolled 60 burdens onto the Lord this morning. That's how I'm dealing with things. That's how I'm keeping myself from going crazy. Yeah, I may have pulled my hair out a little bit, but I rolled 60 burdens onto the Lord. Think about 60 burdens weighing down his heart. And sometimes life is like that, isn't it? You have 60 things weighing on your heart, 60 things keeping you up at night, 60 things that take away your appetite, 60 things that have your stomach all tied up in knots. And you got to learn to roll those things onto the Lord. You cannot carry those things. You are not strong enough. You weren't made to carry those things. You have to learn to say, here you go, Jesus. These belong to you. That's discipleship 101. But you have to roll them onto Jesus again and again and again, don't you? Why? Because there is a boomerang nature to our troubles and sorrows, isn't there? They have a way of coming back and ringing the doorbell of our hearts. So we roll them onto Jesus And sometimes they roll back. And then we have to roll them on him again. And that's discipleship. Why does it have to be this way? my, My best guess is that it keeps us dependent on the Lord. I wish it were not this way, but it is. I wish I could roll my burdens on the Lord and they stayed there. But they come back. It's one of the ways that we feed on his faithfulness, as David says here. It's one of the ways that we enjoin communion with him. Because I, I thought about this this morning. If, if I could roll my burdens onto Jesus and they stayed there, I wouldn't need him as much as I do. 
And I would go about my day not being needy. I'd be like, here's my burdens, you take them. And I would live my life free and carefree, and I probably wouldn't think about Jesus that much. And I assume you're the same way too. They roll back because they keep us dependent on the Lord because by nature we think we can handle life all by ourselves. It's why we don't pray as much. Because we think we can handle life by ourselves. So this is one of the ways that we feed on his faithfulness. So one of the ways that we enjoy communion with Jesus. We keep coming back with our burdens, asking Jesus to take them. And he does. And then we trust that he will act on our behalf, as David says here. We learn to wait on him to vindicate us, as David says in verse 6. And we learn to be still. And that's hard to do, isn't it? To be still before the Lord. We get squirmy and squiggly like a child. It's, it's hard to sit still. We have to learn to settle down and rest and not be so antsy. And we do that by continually talking to the Lord, casting our burdens and cares on him, just keeping this, this relationship open. The great theologian Charles Hodge described uh, how he prayed without ceasing and how he learned that most when he was a child. Here's what he says. I think that in my childhood, I came nearer to conforming to the Apostle Paul's injunction, pray without ceasing, than any other period of my life. As far back as I can remember, I had the habit of thanking God for everything I received and asking him for everything I wanted. If I lost a book or any of my playthings, I prayed that I might find it. I prayed walking along the streets, in school and out of school, whether playing or studying. I did not do this in obedience to any prescribed rule. It seemed natural. I thought of God as an everywhere present being, full of kindness and love, who would not be offended if children talked to him. I knew he cared for sparrows. I was as cheerful and happy as the birds and acted as they did. That's freedom. I love how he described God here. An everywhere present being full of kindness and love who would not be offended if children talked to him. Isn't that beautiful? Now let me ask you, is that how you view Jesus when you are overwhelmed and carrying 60 burdens? Do you go to him with 60 burdens that are weighing on your heart And think that you approach an everywhere present being full of kindness and love who would not be offended if a child like you talked to him. Well, you can go to him that way because that's who he is. You don't approach a grumpy father. You don't approach God who has a frown on his face like, you again? How many times are you going to roll that thing on to me? You don't approach God that way. You approach a kind, compassionate Savior. So we roll our burdens onto Jesus, and then we have to learn to, David says, wait patiently. So it's like, David, be still and wait patiently. You're killing me, Smalls. Like, really? You got to put those words together? Be still and wait patiently? That's hard to do, isn't it? This Hebrew word that gets translated as wait patiently has the idea of waiting with anticipation, which is typically not how we wait for Jesus, is it? But it also has the idea of writhing or twisting. It's actually used in the Old Testament for women who are in labor 
about to give birth. They twist and writhe patiently as they wait for their baby to come. And so this is the perfect word to use for wait patiently because that's what we see with birth. The baby will come when it comes, but you have to wait and writhe. And God will answer when God will answer, but you have to wait and writhe sometimes. But you do all of that waiting and all of that writhing and twisting. You do it with anticipation. A pregnant lady knows, I have to go through birth, but there's the anticipation of I get to see my baby for the first time and hold it. And that's the life of a disciple. We pray and then we wait for God to intervene. And we know that he will intervene. But there's this sense of anticipation as well as this sense of writhing and twisting but there is a sense of confident expectation and trust. We wait for God to intervene and answer our prayers, but we do it anticipating and expecting God to come through for us in some really wild and crazy ways that are going to blow our minds. So David is actually telling us that we can actually expect Jesus to intervene in our lives because that's who he is. We can have confidence that he is going to respond. In his time and in his way, according to his wisdom, we can anticipate him intervening because we believe his word, because we believe his promises, because we believe he's faithful and we feed on his faithfulness. That means whenever our heart is busy, whenever our heart is antsy and squirmy and stressed out, we can actually say something like this. I wonder what God's going to do in this situation. I wonder how he's going to show up. It's kind of exciting to think about it. Instead of being antsy and having an antsy heart, have an asking heart. Be inquisitive. Man, I wonder what God's going to do. I've rolled this burden onto the Lord and he created Saturn. So, man, what's he going to do in this situation? Paul Miller said, when you stop trying to control your life, and instead allow your anxieties and problems to bring you to God in prayer, you shift from worry to watching. You watch God weave his patterns in the story of your life. Instead of trying to be out front, designing your life, you realize you are inside God's drama. As you wait, you begin to see him work, And your life begins to sparkle with wonder. You are learning to trust again. I like that phrase. You begin to sparkle with wonder. Like, I wonder what God's going to do in this really heavy situation that's weighing down my heart. But I wonder what he's going to do. He does really cool stuff all the time. What's he going to do in this situation that has me so worked up? And you've been there a million times, Christian. And hasn't he come through for you? Hasn't he knocked your socks off before in wild and crazy ways? You get to that place by collapsing on Jesus. You just belly flop onto Jesus and you rest. Like coming in from a long day and you just walk into your bedroom and you just fall face first and collapse on your bed. You belly flop, you just spread eagle and you rest and you just say, right? That's the Hebrew word for trust. And that's what David is recommending here in Psalm 37. When your heart is restless, belly flop and then rest on Jesus. Or think of it this way. 
just doing a nesty plunge into God's providence. Do you remember the old nesty plunge commercials? I'm showing my age here, okay? You can tell by the picture, that was a long time ago. One of my sons, we were watching something old once, and he was like, how did y'all watch TV back then? You can't even see anything. You kids are spoiled with high def now. Like, that was high def, and we loved it. What you may not know, he, is, he has like a glass of tea in his hand. And as a kid, I always thought, you're losing your tea in the pool. But that's the nest tea plunge. They would take a drink and then fall back into a swimming pool. And then every kid did it after that, right? That's what David is suggesting in Psalm 37. You just simply fall back into God's providential care and rule of his world. You fall back and rest. And so you can leave here today And you can tell people, my pastor told me to belly flop onto Jesus, and I'm going to do it. Let me ask you, what's making your heart antsy this morning? What has taken the title of your heart's trust? What is your heart's preoccupation? Who or what has taken your heart's loyalty, fear, and delight? Look to Jesus again and let it go. Collapse and Rest on him. Charles Spurgeon said, Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity. In other words, take a nesty plunge into the sea of God's immensity. And that will help you while you wait for Jesus to come back and deal with his enemies. And that's what David talks about next. Look at verse 9. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for Yahweh shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but Yahweh laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their swords shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but Yahweh upholds the righteous. Yahweh knows the day of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times." In the days of famine they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of Yahweh are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by Yahweh shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. To summarize, David is just saying, ain't nobody getting away with nothing. And that's what these verse, nine verses are saying. The wicked are on their way out. The wicked are here one day and gone the next, but believers will remain. Now, it's true, yes, as Christians, we die, and our spirits go to be with Jesus, and we wait for our resurrected bodies, but we're getting resurrected bodies. Isn't that great? And we will inherit the new earth forever. We will delight in abundant peace forever when Jesus comes back to make all things new. And until then, David tells us that the Lord laughs at the wicked because he knows how it all ends. God turns it all back on them. It will blow up in their faces. 
Yes, the wicked may prosper in this life and have lots of money and seemingly have it all together. But you know what? They don't have Jesus. But when you have Jesus, you can truly say from your heart, as David says here, better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. I was listening to a podcast yesterday, and this famous guy with lots of money said, I thought when I got famous and had all this money, my troubles would go away. But they actually got bigger and bigger and more and more. When Jesus is your treasure, that's all you need. He will uphold you. He will sustain you, David says, no matter what you go through. And he will sustain you through death. Think about that. The wicked cannot say that. But for believers, Jesus is there at death, ready to take us by the hand. When we die and breathe our last, we see Jesus. We have a friend, our older brother, waiting for us on the other side of death. But not so with the wicked. For them it's just darkness and everlasting torment in hell. So look to Jesus this morning, Christian. And if you're not a Christian, look to Jesus. You can be saved today. You can be forgiven. Just come to Jesus. Will you believe? Will you trust in him? He died in your place for your sin. Will you trust in him? You can be spared from eternal torment in hell. By just opening up the empty hands of faith and say, I come with nothing but my sin, Jesus. Have mercy on me. But Christian, look to Jesus this morning. Collapse on him. He's got this. There's no need to fret about what's happening in our world. No need to worry. No need to stress. You just rest and you fall on the bed of providence. That's your job. It's just to belly flop onto Jesus and then rest. When you're stressed out, worried, sick, all worked up, just tell yourself, I need to belly flop on Jesus right now. And you just collapse on him and you roll your burdens on him and you rest. That's your job, if you will, in this relationship. You roll your burdens onto Jesus and you rest because he is the burden bearer, not you. You're not the burden bearer. He is the burden bearer. You are the burden roller. He's the burden bear. You're the belly flopper in this relationship. So learn to belly flop with all your sin and failures and worries and burdens. You have to learn to say to Jesus about your sins. Here you go, Jesus. These belong to you. The things that you're ashamed of, heavy guilt, you know what you've done this week. You have to learn to say, here, Jesus, these belong to you. You died for them. You take your worries and your cares, the things that are keeping you up at night, and say, here, Jesus, these belong to you now. You collapse, and then you're free. You're forgiven, and Jesus paid it all. Let me ask you, what would your life look like if you really believe that? If you really believe that you're forgiven, and you're free, and you don't have to do anything to earn God's favor. You don't do anything to earn his love. What if you really believe that you just have to just go like this? <sighs> That's it? I don't have to pray for 10 minutes to get some sort of feeling? I don't have to read my Bible? No, those things will come when you love Jesus, but you don't have to do anything to experience his love and grace and mercy. It's there. You just have to go, okay, I'll take it. And then you just go, <sighs> and man, then you really begin to live. That's freedom. You begin to rest. 
Charles Spurgeon said this, and then we'll pray. Everlasting love shall be the pillow on which I rest my head tonight. Everlasting love will be the pillow on which I rest my head tonight. And the same is true for you. Rest, y'all, just rest. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for who you are. We ask you to turn up the music of the gospel to 11. Compel us to join you on the dance floor of your kindness, grace, and welcome. Sabotage our every reason for hanging back, whether it's shame, anger, fear, busyness, our Enneagram number, our personality, or any other lame excuse that we might come up with. Help us to know and believe that we are most alive when we are most alive in you, Jesus. So we ask you this morning, restore to us the joy of our salvation. Renew us in our first love for you. Release us this morning from the dusty dungeon of our self-pity, our self-righteousness, our self-preoccupation, our self-loathing, and our self-justifying ways. Set us free in your name. Amen.